We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Lisa are in the newsroom. Ken is on the street. Will is on the board and... All fully vaccinated and living the dream during a global pandemic. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 310. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station uh, clearing the trees. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note uh, via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Facebook and Twitter, feel free. Uh, poll question of the day on our Twitter page. And uh, don't forget, you can communicate via that as well. Feel free. Love to hear the feedback as always. All right, uh, lots to cover today. Lots going on. Have you been watching what's been going on in regard to uh, the Miners. We were talking about this yesterday, and uh, since the weekend, uh, 39 miners have been uh, trapped in this mine uh, near Sudbury, Ontario, and uh, they've got pretty much most of them out, but uh, it, it's just, uh, you can imagine what they must have gone through uh, during this period, during this time uh, underground. Obviously, they are prepared for these sorts of things, but yeah, being prepared for it and actually experiencing it, obviously two different things. Uh, and, and, you know, some sort of issue with the transportation system that uh, left them walked down there. Uh, a team of doctors uh, have been on site and uh, have been checking them as they're uh, coming out. And uh, it appears that uh, that they're all doing okay. The workers had also had access to water, food, and, med- and medication as well. And uh, actually had uh, communication through cell phones and such, which uh, is good to hear. But you can just imagine what that was like. Uh, unable to exit the mine on Sunday after damage to a shaft which houses uh, the elevator system that I guess gets them uh, in and out and uh, as a result they had to uh, they had to be stay down stay down there until of course they could start doing uh, whatever it is that they needed to do to uh, to start to get these people out uh, my goodness it's it's been fascinating watching some of the uh, the interviews of people that have come out and uh, just another day at the mine for them. Uh, it will try to play you some of that audio coming up a little later on. Uh, but yeah, good news. They are uh, getting out these those 39 uh, miners that have been trapped underground uh, in Sudbury, obviously since, since the weekend, since Sunday. To uh, give us an update on what is going on, let's bring in Mike Trollet, Global National Correspondent and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. So give us a bit of an update here. This is a fluid story. Where are we on this? Well, there were 39 miners trapped underground uh, on Sunday when the elevator or the, the cage system, it's really the lifeline for the mine, when it, it, it broke down. Something happened and uh, it no longer worked. So these 39 miners were then put into uh, a refuge, which is kind of a holding station. It's like a room underground, as it's been described to me. Uh, and that's where they waited. There's minimal amounts of food and water. So uh, supposedly they were able to have some, uh, some candy bars and, and, and uh, power bars dropped down to them through this one egress tube, which is like a secondary tube that runs vertical, but it's sort of jotted a little bit. So they put down, they discovered, they realized they had to rescue them 
that's the only way out. So they put all these ladders, these six meter long ladders, uh, side to side to side, and they had to climb up. And it's a really narrow tube. So it was a slow, painstaking process. Took up to 10 hours for some of them. And you say, why? Well, it was almost two and a half CN towers tall. Like uh, some of these guys were as low as 1,200 meters. Wow. Which uh, is a staggering amount. Uh, most of them were out by this morning. By about 11.30 this morning, we heard that 33 of them were out. Uh, and uh, we've been getting conflicting reports, but I've had it confirmed by three different people that there are still four uh, men that are trapped. Um, and it's not that they're trapped. It's just that they are taking a little longer to get out. Um, there's a lot of rest stations. I mean, this is two CN towers that they're climbing up through narrow, narrow tubes um, with, uh, you know, one rung at a time wearing their thick uh, mining gear. Uh, it, it, it can't be easy, that's for sure. Oh, my. Just the thought of that is uh, it's frightening. Uh, have you heard anything about the health of the miners that are coming up? Obviously, there's still a few down there, four down there. Um, what about the health of those that have come up? The health of the miners is surprisingly good. They've had no injuries. They had medical staff that went down to see how they were doing, and they have rescue staff that go down. So every time a miner comes up, he actually comes up with a rescue official. So uh, they're not sort of left to their own devices. You know, talking about that tube, I'm, I'm just thinking claustrophobia. It's just driving yeah. me crazy thinking about it. Uh, so, no, they've actually been in fairly good – they've been in a very good condition, actually. Um, they've been uh, fairly healthy, and, uh, and they've been driving out. Some of them were told that they weren't allowed to drive home, so they've had to get into cabs. Uh, understandable if you've been underground for over two hours. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Someone take me home. Take the wheel. I'm wow. That's amazing. And you know, you even I've even listened to interviews on some of them. And uh, yeah, no problem. We're ready to go back down. It's 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 amazing when you think about it. It is. It, it's it's stunning. I mean, uh, these but these guys are tough. And you know, Sudbury yeah. is a mining town. It's uh, you know the they call it the unofficial bedrock mining capital of the world. There's nine major mines here. Uh, as, as well as some, some other operations. I mean, you drive along and you see these massive, uh, these massive towers all over the place sort of dotting the landscape. I mean, this is where we get a lot of our minerals. They do copper and uh, cobalt in these mines um, and nickel. It's, uh, it, and it's important for the economy. And, uh, and you know, these guys, are, you know, they grew up with this. I mean, they're, 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 they're miners. They've, some of these guys have been underground for, you know, three decades. So uh, obviously, this was uh, an issue with the transportation uh, system that that, that uh, obviously made them stuck down there. Uh, were they ever in any other than, of course, the having to go through this uh, ordeal? Were they ever in any immediate danger? That I can't say. I do know that um, they do have these these rooms, um, these refuge rooms uh, mm-hmm. set up, the, uh, and, and they have them set up in, in different spots. And they're and it's basically, it's apparently it's like a room. Um, and as soon as they've realized that they were trapped, they were all sent to these spots uh, to sort of wait it out and wait for the, you know, the rescue plan to sort of come about. Uh, I mean, from what, from what we've been told, a lot of these guys, uh, some of these guys have said that they didn't have a lot of food and water. Um, there was some, but I mean, at two days with sort of minimal, I mean, they were eating, you know, candy bars, they were eating yeah. power bars, that sort of thing, which, you know, is, is I mean, they, they say it really wasn't, terrible um but in terms of in terms of danger uh, we're still waiting to hear from uh, the uh, the ontario uh, mining rescue operation people as well as the uh, the parent company valet 
All right, Mike Trollet has been with us with the latest on the mining accident in Sudbury. Uh, looks like there's still four trapped down there. Make sure you're watching Global National tonight for more on all of this. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Facebook and Twitter, the poll question of the day on Twitter, will the Blue Jays make the playoffs? Feel free to weigh in on that. About a 50-50 split on that question right now. Uh, feel free. We would love to hear your opinion. Still to come uh, before the hour is up at the top of the hour, before the 4 o'clock news, we'll talk to Global's Mike Drolet, uh in regard to the rescue going up, uh, going on in Sudbury, uh, the 39 miners trapped uh, since Sunday, now making their way out. We'll give you an update on that coming up uh, in just a few minutes. All right, uh, we certainly remember uh, the discovery of the remains of all of those children beneath the Kamloops, former Kamloops Residential School, uh, sparking a, a another level of this discussion and certainly searches right across the country in various other uh, residential school locations. Uh, and, and many, uh, much of this, the discussion has centered around, uh, the Catholic Church's responsibility in all of this. Uh, the Anglican Church and such, uh, have taken, uh, responsibility and, and, and have apologized officially, uh, a while ago, but the Catholic Church and specifically the Pope still, uh, not really weighing in on this. And now a leader in Canada's National Assembly of Catholic Bishops says that he hopes an apology for the harms endured at residential schools could mark a turning point in the Church's relationship with Indigenous peoples, but some leaders within the community say it remains to be seen whether the expression of remorse will be backed by uh, meaningful action. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ken Coates is with a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and with us now. Uh, Ken, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fine, sir. Good to talk to you. How significant is this this apology? Uh, How far does this go? How is this being received? Um, it's being received sort of with mixed results. Some people are, and some First Nations people are, Indigenous people are enthusiastic. Others are very cautious and saying, why did it take so long? So it's an important step, um, not the final step, uh, but it's a change in direction. And I think there's a lot of people who, uh, who appreciate that. So basically, uh, I take this as an indication that the Catholic bishops are prepared to take, undertake a journey. And they're prepared to put some money behind it and to put the sort of the weight of their bishops' offices behind it. So that's got to be a, a better thing than the past. Um, but they have, the, the Catholic Church has two things to address. One is their re- relationship to the, ro- the residential schools. And the second one is why it took so long to get to this point. It's not as though residential schools are a new item uh, for Canadians or for churches. It's been around for a long time. And, and so like, why, what took you so long, and why are the documents not released yet? There's a whole bunch of questions still unanswered, but this is an important day. Uh, my next question, obviously, uh, you've just mentioned it. Does this come with compensation? Could this lead to compensation? And then, again, as you said, why now? What, what has triggered this now? So I'll answer the second one first, and that is that they are leading up to a meeting of Indigenous leaders with the Pope. And I think the Roman Catholic, the broader Roman Catholic Church wanted to sort of take any kind of edge off of that one by, you know, if, if the meeting with the Pope started by, why haven't you even apologized or recognized the problem, that would have been a pretty uncomfortable meeting. So in one sense, this is preparatory work leading up to the meeting with the Pope, and I think that's really important and necessary, necessary thing to be done. Um, the other sort of questions about, about why, 
why it took so long and whether this will address those sort of things are really troubling. Um, the, the consensus in this country about residential schools is pretty strong. Uh, the requests by Indigenous peoples are absolutely crystal clear. Um, the church has stonewalled on a whole bunch of different issues, partly because they were dealing with, uh, particularly at the, at the local level, the diocese level, dealing with some financial crises arising out of all of this and all the various court cases. Um, but, but there is no reason for it to take this long or for the church to drag its heels. Right now, there's still frustration about the absence of limited access to, to church records. Uh, where the documentation about where the bodies are and the experience of the kids in the in the schools might be, um, that's been a frustration for a very very long time. So um, a good step that, that leads to something bigger. It, it to my mind, it basically suggests that the meeting with the Pope is being designed to go well. Uh, that the Pope will be receptive. He'll build on the apology and maybe do what is absolutely essential, and that is to come to Canada and deliver the apologies directly to residential school survivors. Many have questioned why the Pope hasn't done this sooner, but from what I understand, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, it's that he has to be approached by the Canadian bishops for this request before he does something like this. So was the case that the Canadian bishops weren't taking this to the Pope? I, I think they certainly took it to the Pope in the sense of conversations uh, being had. Um, but basically, the Canadian bishops had to get their own sort of plan in, in, in place. And notice that there'll, there'll be considerable resistance. You know, at one level, there's still a small number of people in the Catholic Church and other churches who think, you know, the residential school problem has been exaggerated. There were problems, but actually it was a better setting for the students than people have described, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's a minority, a minority position. There's a longer, larger one that says, be careful about admitting, apologizing and admitting liability, because, you know, yeah. you may be opening up yourself to a whole bunch of other court cases and other challenges. So big issues uh, uh, that, that, that created a, an, a surplus of, of, of caution. You know, I think they would have been a lot better at making partnerships with Indigenous people if they'd moved more, more quickly. Uh, will what the Catholic bishops have done change the Pope's opinion? Will we see anything quickly, or will this take time? From what I understand about the Catholic Church, and the bishops can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is that these things, an, uh, an apology of this nature and the compensation that has been offered, the $30 million they've talked about uh, just earlier today, um, essentially would not have been done without the, the Pope's, uh, the Vatican's knowledge. They would have. This has not come completely out of blue. The the Catholic Church is a very hierarchical, very well structured organization. It does not work with complete autonomy. Um, so I think there would have been conversation back and forth, and I think it's actually clearing the way for a a more conciliatory conversation with the Pope than would otherwise have been the case. So I think that you know if you look at the First Nations, Métis, Inuit people responding to to this um, over the last couple of days, um, basically they've said, well, prove to me that it means something. Yeah, um, And I think the proof that it means something is whether the Pope actually responds more constructively. Because quite frankly, if the Pope doesn't follow through by acknowledging the apology and sort of offering to make um, a sort of penance in one sense in, uh, in with, the, with the children who went to those schools, um, this will actually be just seen as another window-dressing exercise. And I honestly don't believe that the bishops actually believe it that way. They, they see this as a, a turning point for them. The question is whether it's a turning point for the indigenous people, and in we haven't got any proof of that yet. And when will we see that? When w what would be next that would confirm that? 
Well, two things. One is they've talked about a $30 million sort of uh, you know, package that would actually go toward uh, dealing with the consequences of residential school, not so much in the way of compensation that was dealt with at a national level as perhaps was appropriate. Um, but it, the first stage is, will, they, will the Catholic churches really let the First Nations, Inuit and Métis people design uh, how that money is spent? Um, will they just sort of allocate it to their own their own strategies and their own plans? Will they do what Ottawa is increasingly doing, which is to co-produce policy? They say, okay, we've got $30 million. We want it to go in this area. You tell us how we can use it the best to get the best results for, for, the, for the families and their survi- uh, the survivors and their families. That's the first step. The second one that people are looking forward to with great, great eagerness is the meeting with the Pope in the fall. Um, and if that meeting goes ahead and uh, is very constructive and positive, it will send a message to the broader Catholic Church that it's really time for the Church to turn a page on residential schools and to focus on, on amelioration of the consequences, uh, focus on sort of solving some of the personal and multi-generational problems, and, and just recognize and acknowledge that, that you know, it was just wrong. What was done at the residential yeah. schools was too destructive, too um, uh, intrusive in the lives of individual people and communities, um, and, and poorly managed in terms of sexual abuse and violence. You know, so these are all documented. We know the implications and the impacts that the residential schools had, but to have a major institution sort of resist the temptation to sort of come clean uh, has been just a, had, adding a pall to this whole, whole conversation. The Catholic Church played a major role in residential schools, and as long as they did not apologize, did not get involved in compensation, did not have the Pope get involved, it left everybody unfulfilled. It's almost as though there's a bit of a denial process going on that was just unacceptable. And so I think Indigenous folks have a reason to be mildly optimistic. Uh, They also have a reason to be skeptical. The Church has more to do, but this is an important first step. Dr. Ken Coates with a senior fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with McDonald Laurier Institute, a leader in Canada's National Assembly of Catholic Bishop, says he hopes an apology for the harms endured at residential schools will mark a turning point. Uh, Ken, thanks for the time. Be well. You're more than welcome. Take care. Bye. All right, uh, Ontario, the science table had a uh, modeling update earlier on today. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert, and uh, he is with us now and has been since I think we've been doing this for about 80 weeks now. So, And uh, Dr. Khalid has been uh, offering us his advice since way back the first wave. Uh, Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right, so modeling out uh, earlier on today, obviously, well, what it says, uh, the, the Ontario Science Table advises the fourth wave in the province has flattened and has released what it describes as a wide range of projections uh, into the fall. What are your thoughts at this at first glance? Well, I think the projections, what they're telling us is that, you know, overall Ontario and Ontarians have been doing really well in trying to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. But that we can't really, you know, let our guard down in terms of our public health measures. That steady and slow approach is the way forward to ensure that we really continue on this success that we're having in controlling the case numbers, not to go above a thousand a day. And, you know, obviously we've stayed to the uh, best case scenario in the modeling that was released prior to this set of modeling. And, you know, some may be skeptical because, you know, it could be as low as 500 cases, could be as high as 5,000 cases. But all we have to do is look to places like uh, West or Alberta or, or Saskatchewan to see what happens if you take your foot off the gas here. 
Well, that's it. And that's precisely what we're trying to say here and what the Science Advisory Board is saying, that we can't be lifting the measures too prematurely. We need to continue this slow and steady approach because it's proving to be successful. Uh, I think that when we look at the data and we realize that, for example, our ICU and hospitalization rates have been stable in the past couple of weeks, that indicates to us that the measures that are being put in place, whether that's increased ventilation, social isolation, for the, uh, social distancing, increasing vaccination among the groups that need to get vaccinated, are measures that are working and will continue to work if we keep uh, sort of making sure they are enforced across the province. How concerned are you that we're going to get to that point? Look, we're okay. The, the, the rates are flattening. We have this, you know, 86% with a first dose. Uh, open it up. Open it up. How, I mean, here we go again. Well, I think that if you know, if you live in Ontario, you probably notice that we have the easing of restrictions over the summer has brought us back some kind of a normal back to life state. And that the many of us who are in the province are enjoying this relaxed state of lockdowns that we were used to in the past. So I suspect that, you know, I, I can't tell if, but I think that the majority of Ontarians are, are okay with, you know, staying the course because it is working and we don't want to see ourselves going back to a full lockdown. We know what that looks like and I don't think anybody wants that again. Let's talk about schools. Obviously, we're waiting for approval from 5 to 11-year-olds in Canada, and we're hoping around uh, Christmas time that that can move forward. What about the outbreaks in schools that we're seeing? Uh, well, let's answer that one first, and then we'll talk about how the, the boards are prepping for the incoming vaccine. But how concerned are you about what we're seeing in schools? I think we are going to keep a very close eye to what's going on in school. It's a bit too early at this point to really say whether the reopening of schools is going to cause a, a massive increase in case numbers. I think that kind of data will come in in the next couple of weeks, probably around the Thanksgiving break. We will see those data coming in, and then people will, and scientists will have a much better informed response on the schools reopening and whether you know schools continue to be a big concern. So far, so good, though, but still early, Doctor? It is a bit early. I think that it's still not enough time of us spending indoors. Kids are still playing outdoors for the majority of the time. With the yeah. weather changing and more kids playing indoors and more families and individuals living indoors, we are, we're, you know, we're keeping an eye on the weather projections to see what would have, what cause that will have on the numbers of COVID-19. It can lead to an increase because the weather changes. Uh, we've heard boards in Toronto and here in Hamilton are prepping for the approval of the vaccination for five to uh, 11-year-olds. Uh, how important is it to get a handle on this before this is actually approved and, and supplies uh, are rolling in? I understand it is a different vaccine uh, as well. So your thoughts on prepping for this big day? Well, I think that we need to get ahead of that. So I think school boards are probably doing that because we learned from our experience when we first introduced the vaccine to the general population that it's so important to have systems in place so we don't have another Twitter fight where people are trying to find slots to get vaccinated. So if we can get our school boards organized and how we're planning to administer the vaccine, raising the education level within parents and children about the importance of the vaccine, those are all measures you need to be doing ahead of time so when the time does come, you're ready to roll out the vaccine in a very time-efficient manner. Will it not be easier to get the kids done simply because we can go to them all in, in school or in one place? In theory, yes, but that's assuming that all children and their parents will consent to the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, there are going to be issues also about supply, like who's administering the vaccines in schools? What's the capacity of the school being able to administer the vaccine? Those are all logistical questions that are probably the school boards are right now considering and figuring out the way forward.
Is this a different vaccine than what adults have? So will there be a supply issue? There shouldn't be a supply issue. And as as far as I know, and that could have changed over the the last few days, but the vaccine shouldn't be that much different than what the adults have had. And so we're waiting on Health Canada to give the final okay uh, on children from 5 to 11 to receive that vaccine. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert, talking about new modeling that has come out today and, of course, the kids in school and getting ready to vaccinate the 5 to 11-year-olds. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks. Stay safe. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. He seems to be like kind of a go-getter, just getting things done and... You know, went, got a haircut, got vaccinated, just getting on with his life. Like he, he said, like, I can't wait to, to enjoy my new freedoms and to just like get on with my life. That is, that is the pharmacist that injected one of the two Michaels with the vaccine. And then, of course, uh, the Twitter photo went viral, and the rest is history, as they say. And a lot of people talking about uh, a man who spent uh, over a 1,000 days in a Chinese prison, and one of the first things he does is uh, get a vaccination with his freedom. Hopefully that will resonate and encourage more to uh to actually become vaccinated uh what a great story that is all right uh michael kovrig and michael spaber as we know are back in canada after almost three years in detention in china uh obviously related to uh the huawei cfo case as uh both were it seemed were in flight simultaneously both groups uh going back and forth but uh as the globe and mail has stated there's quite a few uh, Canadians that are in China that are not free, uh, as many as 115. What do we know about them? Let's bring in Ben Roswell, President, Canadian International Council, and with us now. Ben, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you very much, Scott. Before we get started, Ben, I just want your thoughts on the arrival of the two Michaels and the fact that this was done almost simultaneously with the release of the Huawei CFO, and yet this is apparently not related. Uh, now it, it appears that it was, in fact, hostage diplomacy. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was definitely hostage diplomacy, although I would uh, I would actually say that it was a failed uh, exercise in hostage diplomacy and that China um, had Meng Wanzhou in detention here in Canada for three years. We had, uh, it had a smaller country stand up to it successfully and insist right through to the very end and successfully on the separation of powers in our country and the rule of law. Uh, so it's not a particularly effective method for China to get, uh, to get what it wants. It's also lost a tremendous amount of faith uh, in um, other countries, uh, faith in China around the world. So I actually, uh, I think they'll, they'll uh, think twice before uh, they try to um, they try this particular hardball tactic we know they're they're going to play hardball some other way um, but I think this is a Chinese failure out, out and out in, uh, China. do you think they realize that because many experts I've talked to have said they just don't care but they, obviously as you said there is a massive world impact here how can it not resonate it is possible that they failed and they don't care uh, yeah. not mutually exclusive um, to uh, justify my claim of uh, of failure, I would point to the really kind of ridiculous propaganda coming out of out of uh, out of China right now. Um, I mean, their claim for why the two Michaels was released the very same day that Meng Wanzhou uh, flew back to China was medical reasons. I mean, just think how yeah. ridiculous that is that these two men in the prime of their lives are sick on exactly the same day, two different prisons, completely unrelated to to one another. So. I mean, hmm. Chinese people would just be able to see through their government's uh, 
propaganda on this. I mean, the reality is that uh, this emerging superpower tried to pick on a smaller country. That smaller country stood up for itself and for three years held its ground. Now, we mm. can disagree about whether we were right to hold our ground, whether we paid too much of a price, whether we should have done a deal earlier on, but I still think it's pretty remarkable mm. that uh, Good that point. stood up to China. What about the other 115? Is that the same sort of scenarios as the two Michaels, or are these completely different actual crimes involved here? They're different, but they're still of, of concern. So I think what was particularly uh, obnoxious and offensive about the cases of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor was that they were taken hostage partic- pr- um, precisely to place pressure on the Canadian government. So it really was an attack on the Canadian nation as a whole. With some of the other ones, there are um, potential abuses of human rights. We think about the death sentences meted out to Robert Schellenberg and quite a few others that were profiled in the Globe recently. The death penalty is uh, inconsistent with international human rights standards. Um, and then there's, uh, there's repression against uh, religious minorities, like the Falun Gong sect. There are some Canadians that have been thrown in prison um, because they, they happen to have a certain set of religious beliefs. Uh, and then I think the most well-known case now that the two Michaels are free is Hussein and Chalil, who's a, a Uyghur um, Canadian who was uh, arrested for leading religious services uh, in, in Islam. That um, it's not a crime. Uh, it shouldn't be a crime in China. It certainly is not a crime in international law um, to practice the Muslim religion. And yet he's been in jail uh, for more than 20 years, I believe, sentenced um, 15 years ago and is still languishing in a jail. So Canada needs to keep up the pressure on China for, to honor its, uh, its obligations under international law and to defend our citizens. Can you, considering again where China is on the world stage right now and how it looks, uh, is there any momentum here uh, due to the release of the two Michaels where this good uh, will could continue? Your thoughts? Uh, I uh, hope so. I mean, we have to remain hopeful for the sake of those 150 mm-hmm. Canadians that remain behind bars. Um, I do think that the the moment is ripe for for Canada to press forward its um, efforts to build an international consensus against hostage diplomacy. There were 57 countries that signed on to uh, a declaration that Canada organized back in February. I think it's time to press forward and turn that into an actual treaty at international uh, law. And who knows, maybe invite uh, China to sign it, because if they claim to, um, you know, they're, they're accusing us of, uh, of arbitrary detention. Uh, in the case of uh, Meng Wanzhou, we can, we can both say, listen, this is all behind us. If we agree in principle that we don't like arbitrary detentions, let's both put our uh, our signatures to this piece of international law. I think we should uh, we should go on the offensive now that we've won this round with the Chinese. Um, mm. We'll probably lose other rounds in the in the future because they are a powerful country. But while we've got the advantage right now, I think we should press it. How can we possibly move forward with the Beijing Olympics, considering where we are and where we've come from? Yeah, that's a that's a really uh, tough one because it's really it's right around the corner. Isn't mm-hmm. um, I mean I think uh, um, the Olympics are not going to be the success that the 2008 Olympics were. This is when China really kind of had its coming yeah. in party as a as a major power, and China was really quite popular in 2008. I was actually at those Olympics. I certainly was not going anywhere near mm. the uh, the 2022 uh, Olympics. 
I, um, I think there's been a sort of compromise position arrived at by Canada and many other countries, which is that we won't punish our athletes. Uh, of course, been through all kinds of terrible setbacks with COVID and the Tokyo Olympics, which were which yeah. were uh, a real challenge. But we won't send any delegations. We won't honor the Olympics as a as a government. We won't. You know, often the prime minister or right. the governor general might go, and we won't. So the athletes that. will go, but none of the dignitaries will go. You don't think? Yeah, and I, you know, I I think these will go down as uh, as an unsuccessful game. Um, they they will still they probably will still go ahead, and I think there will be Canadian athletes there. But I think um, um, they, they're certainly not going to be anywhere near as successful as the Vancouver Olympics in in 2010. And there's going to be very very few dignitaries of any country. Ben Roswell with us, president of the Canadian International Council, talking about other Canadians that have been and are detained in China. Uh, hopefully, momentum with the two Michaels will help them too. Ben, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks. All right, a new Leger survey that is out. And my goodness, how many times have we talked to pollsters over the course of this election and over the course of this pandemic, uh, gauging where Canadians' minds are? Uh, and a new Leger survey out that shows uh, after the election, uh, about 10% of the respondents said they are happy with the federal outcome or with the outcome of the federal election. The rest are kind of mixed uh, somewhere in between. Let's bring in Christian Bork, executive vice president and partner at Leger, and with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, very well. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Thank you so much. How do you think Canadians are feeling after all of this? Uh, only 10% are really happy. Uh, the rest somewhere in the middle. What are you, what are you to decipher from this? I, I think a lot of Canadians did not sort of bat an eyelash, uh, with the election outcome. As you mentioned, 10% say they're happy with the result. 24 feel comfortable about it. 9% say I prefer minority governments anyway, regardless. And then 14% say, I'm rather indifferent with the outcome. So the majority of Canadians are saying, eh, all right, so what? So do you think this would be different, Christian, if the outcome was different? Because obviously we spent the $600 million and pretty much ended up exactly where we are, where we were, uh, with the exception of a couple of changes here and there. But do you think this, this survey would be different had the outcome be different? I don't know if more Canadians would have been happy uh, about the outcome, but it clearly shows that we are divided as voters. Uh, if you actually look at the electoral map, from the Bloc Québécois and Quebec to the NDP in BC and parts of Ontario to Liberals, sort of a blue west and then sort of a red centre of Canada, uh, it shows we remain divided as voters. Uh, the only time I've seen a, a percentage of Canadians being happy with the outcome of an election last time was 2015 where mm. something happened or there was some hope uh, after the first election of, of uh, Justin Trudeau. Outside of that, though, people seem to be okay with the outcome. Uh, many people were upset when the election was called and, and, and that anger continued right through uh, the election campaign. I remember pollsters saying that they thought it would die down after the campaign got going, but it seemed to continue uh, to resonate. The, the fact that Canadians weren't didn't want this, weren't ready for this because of a pandemic, how much do you think that plays into all of this? Hard to tell because we, we ended up on election night pretty much where the polls were before the election was actually called. Um, so first couple of weeks, we saw sort of a blip in conservative voting intentions showing that it was trending upwards. 
it all sort of died down after the first French language debate. Uh, so this sort of anger at why are we doing this seemed to have sort of died down as the campaign was actually sort of moving forward, which is not a surprise. I mean, every time that a minority government calls an election, there's always a form of anger. It was worse this mm-hmm. time, though, uh, but it's always present. Um, so with this attitude, do you think Canadians are up for another one? Do you think they want to wait a while before the next one? Well, well, and you have to think, uh, who wants one, right? Yeah. Uh, the Liberals clearly see that getting a majority is very difficult. The Conservatives can't seem to find a path to victory, certainly not in Ontario anymore. Uh, the NDP is stuck with sort of a glass ceiling over its, uh, its base right now. The Bloc was losing support until that sort of English language debate. Um, mm. I, I don't think any of the leaders right now would want an election. Do you think the prime minister will finish his term? This is completely unrelated and obviously your opinion, but what do you think? Well, if you look at it, he comes out of this strengthened because all of his opponents are were weakened by the outcome of the election. How long that will last? Um, but I think he's got more seats than the last time. Um, different leaders, same result for the conservatives. Uh, I think the NDP sees that they're it's tough for them to see it or to think of a better outcome than what they've had the last couple of times around. Bloc Québécois is not going any higher than it is now. I think he comes out of this strengthened. Hmm. Christian Bork has been with us, executive vice president and partner at Leger. A new Leger survey shows 10% of the respondents said they were happy with the election outcome. The rest, nah, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty much indifferent. Christian, thanks for the time. As always, be well. The Around the Bay Road Race is a go. Actually, we got a call on this. Steve uh, actually had some Around the Bay Road Race trivia. Hit it, Steve. Yes, just a, a small piece of trivia. The first Around the Bay Road Race in Hamilton, first prize, the first time the person won it, it was a silver cup and a dozen premium cigars. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, I've just uh, run the Around the Bay Road race. It's time for a smoke. (laughs) Why not? Uh, It was a long time ago. Uh, You know, they thought of things differently back then. All right, uh, that's hilarious. Uh, Thanks for that, Steve. All right, so good news. You know, we were talking about when uh, we were chatting with Ted off air, when the last Around the Bay roadway, uh, Road Race was. And obviously, good news, the Around the Bay Road Race for March of 2022 uh, will be back to in-person running. Let's bring in Anna Lewis, organizer of the Around the Bay, and is with us now. Anna, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am. So far, so good. <laughs> so we're heading back to when this was last run. So this was March of 2019. So you would have been a full year ahead of the pandemic for the last real race that we ran. Is that accurate? And then yeah. it was the sec- And then it was 2020 March. That would have been right in the height of it when it was just starting that you would have had to cancel. We canceled two weeks before uh, our yeah. race was scheduled, right? So that's mm. when um, uh, a lot of the... Um, professional sporting events uh, canceled their seasons. So the NBA, the NHL, so we were right at that point uh, where we had to make a decision. And uh, certainly it was the right one, of course. And 
And so we've been planning ever since. So all these different scenarios, and uh, we're hopefully going to be in a spot where we can um, uh, put on the race again. So March 2019, obviously the last time that you ran this race, before we even really knew about what COVID-19 was, uh, how did you arrive at the decision to go with March of 2022? What do you have, what sort of ducks have to be in a row before that thing, before that uh, decision is made? Well, we have several rows of ducks, to be honest, because we have several scenarios that we're looking at. Nothing is for certain. Uh, We are planning um, for an in-person race. Um, but as we know, in 2009, uh, 2020, the, the rug was kind of pulled from right under us two weeks before the race. So we're just going to, you know, be prepared. Um, and so that's all we can do is be prepared for a certain number of participants um, and less or more and see how that goes. And so we'll, we'll just keep planning and have um, any one of our plans ready to go, uh, depending on the situation we have at that moment. Yeah, because, I mean, how do you set protocol or any of that sort of stuff when you really don't know what the world's going to be like in March of 2022? Hopefully it's a lot better than what we are now, and we're a lot farther along with vaccination, especially with the kids by then. But really, it's kind of hard to plan when you don't know. Mm-hmm. So we we know when things are great, right? So we have our plans from all our past years when uh, no uh, COVID protocols were in place. So we have that as our base. Uh, and then we are going to add uh, additional protocols, and then maybe we don't have to use all of them if it's not necessary. Um, so it's better to plan for more and then, you know, scale back if we don't need them. What are other events similar to this doing? I mean, would they, are they back yet? Are they back as of next year? Uh, is there anything you can learn from other events such as this? Yeah, I think there's more and more races uh um, being held. So the Manitoba Marathon held uh, their race uh, a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, our race director kind of group uh, stays uh, quite um, in contact with each other. So we, we do share a lot of our insights. And uh, they shared with us how they uh, held their race. And um, in Toronto, the Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon will be held on October 17th. Uh, and it's a 10K race with 5,000 people. So we're going to, I'm going to be there to help and uh, learn from that as well. Uh, will there be a reduction in the amount, I mean, again, obviously you don't know for March, but even these races that are earlier that you're talking about, is there a reduction in the amount of participants or because you're outside, you can space it out? They, they Those two that I mentioned, Manitoba and Toronto, have reduced uh, entries. Yeah. Um, and we are going to also open up uh, our registration uh, a little bit at a time. Again, we don't want to overpromise and have, you know, too many people register and then we have to say, okay, we can't, you know, we can't uh, support all of that, all of those people. So we want to make sure that when we open registration, we can accommodate uh, the numbers that we're opening it to. So for instance, uh, we're going to open online registration, hopefully in the coming weeks uh, for 5,000 people. And uh, we have about 2,500 that are deferred from uh, 2020, sorry. And so um, we're going to see how that goes. And then um, as things progress, uh, we can maybe open up more spots if, um, if, if we can. Do you think, Anna, we're going to see something like a staggered start? We all remember how exciting the start of this race is, both uh, the real one and the one the rest of us get to play in. Um, but, but do you see anything different there at this point? Well, I mean, if we had to host a race right now, yes, we would definitely have to have a wave start mm-hmm. or a pulse start or certainly staggered for sure because of the 
the current guidelines, right? So, right. Um, again, we have to wait until the, um, you know, the direction from the province and from our public health officials are, are at that time are given, and then we will work within those parameters. Um, and so we'll have, you know, different plans in place for the start line and for the finish, because those are the two congested areas. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we will certainly um, be thinking about our numbers and how we can accommodate different numbers, different quantities. Uh, here's the burning question, Anna. A vaccine needed to participate in the event? Uh, we're leaning that way for sure. Um, mm-hmm. We still have a little bit of time uh, to before we open registration and before we um, make that decision, but it, we're leaning that way. I think that's the... Um, the precedent uh, now for, you know, large-scale events. Uh, yeah. The Blue Jays will be doing it. The, um, you know, NHL will be doing it. So um, I think that's kind of where we're headed. And, you know, with the provincial direction right now, that seems like the logical um, requirement. All right, Anna, we had a listener on earlier on that was giving us some Around the Bay trivia and oh. uh, said that the first Around the Bay winner... Around the, around the Bay Race winner won a box of cigars that was included as part of the prize. Do you know that? Do you remember that? Yes. Do you remember exactly. it? No, but were you heard, you heard of that in the past? I did hear that, yes. There you go. Maybe yeah. bring that back. No? No, nah, I don't well, think so. Well, it, it's, it's really <laughs> tough when, when we have a, a hospital partner who is promoting health care and yes. Um, yes. living. So, uh, it's amazing how times have changed, isn't it? Absolutely, and and for the better, I hope, right? Yes, absolutely. Anna Lewis with us, organizer of the Around the Bay Road Race, and the great news is it looks like the March uh, event in 2022, Around the Bay Road Race, is a go. And uh, hit the website soon. You'll see more information on registration uh, very soon. Anna, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all of this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Ted and Lisa are in the newsroom and around the round table. Uh, good to see all you guys. Uh, hope you're all doing well. Everybody happy, upright, and retaining fluids? Oh, yeah, we're holding in there. <laughs> all right. I wanted to uh, talk about this, and I know some of you may not want to, but I, yeah, I want to talk about the mining uh, accident that happened in, not an accident, it's a situation that happened in um, it, just outside of Sudbury. 39 miners were trapped. We talk, talked to Mike Droulet a little earlier on from Global National, uh, and they'll have more on this tonight. But uh, I think all were, but about four had been, uh, had been uh, uh, I guess, rescued or had come up through a long, very long, narrow, they said twice the size of the CN Tower uh, tube, which is basically enough to have a the width of a ladder down. So you can imagine that and then climbing up uh, for for two stories. This reminded, or for two uh, CN Towers, this reminded me, do you guys remember the Chilean mine disaster where they actually oh, yeah. had a, a camera down there? And I remember very vividly watching them go out one by one, which is which is fascinating. But w- what else was fascinating about this was how miners came up and said, oh, yeah, no big deal, we're going back down again. What are your thoughts on this? Could you ever go back down? 
Um, I mean, I personally am. <laughs> I'm afraid of small spaces. Yes, I'm claustrophobic. Yeah. Um, but I actually, uh, my dad grew up in Sudbury, and uh, his his uh, brother was a miner who actually, unfortunately, died in a mining accident. So I, oh I, I'm, yeah, I'm very aware of the the dangers of how dangerous that occupation is. And I mean, miners seem like they're just they're the made of the strongest stuff. So it seems like yeah, yeah. you know, it's not. It doesn't surprise me that they they're prepared to. Go go right back to it i mean it sounds like this was an equipment failure so not a mm-hmm. mine failure so thankfully you know it it's not like uh certain safety precautions weren't being uh, upheld or whatever so uh, you know it, it's the best case scenario everyone's doing well yeah. hopefully gonna be all okay from now on your thoughts ted about having to endure something like that even though you're not really in any immediate danger but still the thought of it all well, I'm not a miner, so I don't know, but I would su- suggest that, you know, being uh, like, I, I can't comment on that because I, you'd never get me down there, <laughs> first yeah. of all. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I, yeah. being underground is uh, something that I would never do. Uh, it reminds me of being frozen alive in a block of ice uh, several years ago, but uh, not really, uh, obviously, as Wait. traumatic as what this all was. What? Uh, it's a long story. Okay. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a long st- it was a long story in a radio promotion, which they did twice to raise money for uh, Ronald McDonald House, where they actually put you in a two-by-two-by-six um, box, and then they it's frozen, and people come in and wave at you while you do your radio show. That would so, make yeah, it's, so it, anxious. Oh, my goodness. It's... It, yeah, you had to go through a little, uh, a little, um, like a meditation sort of thing before you started, just to keep control. But I, I'm sure uh, anybody who does that sort of uh, business would would be aware of that, and and, and obviously not uh, claustrophobic in in any way. All right, I wanted to ask you too uh, about the modeling as well that just came out, modeling from the Ontario Science Table, and we're sitting at about uh, 466 new cases today, and I guess have fluctuated between there and seven or eight hundred or so. But they have said that we have flattened the curve of the fourth wave we don't want to get too optimistic here because we've certainly seen what's happened in other provinces when you take your foot off the gas but what are your thoughts on on what we're seeing with this well the fourth wave is something that they were concerned about and if indeed this is being flat now i know they're talking about a fifth wave some name uh some two two letter word or something mu or something they mu. called it yeah mu oh uh, m-u-r so, yeah, yeah. Yep. so they were concerned about that but hopefully uh this is the case and this uh, they said the last four weeks daily counts have plateaued and never reached higher than a thousand a day so hopefully this is the end well i i don't even want to say that because i'll probably jinx it yeah. but uh hopefully this well, is you know the what? start of the end some yeah, you'll, there's probably going to be some sort of fifth wave with a small fraction of those people who weren't vaccinated and didn't do this or didn't do that. It just it becomes less and less of a concern, obviously, as more and more uh, people get get vaccinated. But I'm just hoping this doesn't, you know, people just don't go nuts with it. Say, hey, look, you know, we're, we're flattening this down. They're saying we're in a good spot. Let's just go nuts. Uh, hopefully uh, not. Because I, know, approach. because I know people are doing that. And I know that we've had the story all day about a Hamilton restaurant, one of which is uh, saying that they're not going to take that information because they don't feel comfortable doing it. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's my next issue. Your thought on that? You know, I mean, I heard the, the the clip of the lady that you guys played, and she said it doesn't make sense to me that uh, the employees of the staff don't have to be vaccinated yet the customers do. And, and really, that's a legal issue. Uh, you know, that's the, the, the that's that's civil rights in Canada, uh, human rights in Canada, in the sense that you can't stop people from making a living if they're using other alternatives such as testing and 
and such, then they continue on. You can't stop people from earning a living. However, uh, going into a restaurant and exercising that privilege, it's a different story. But it's amazing that we've got this group, which um, I don't know. What, what do you say to that? I think it's completely reprehensible. I mean, I've seen some of the comments that were made by certain restaurants on social media, and they're they just completely disrespectful of all the, the majority of businesses who are following the rules, as difficult as they may be to follow. I mean, th- we're in a pandemic. There are, unfortunately, some things we have to do to protect people who still can't get vaccinated. I'm worried about the kids. I mean, we know that, yes, yeah. maybe kids don't get COVID as bad right now, but we don't know about the long-term implications. We don't know how bad Delta is, and we don't know, you know, what what kids may see down the road from long COVID. I'm I'm just thinking of my nephews, and the, they're in the Hamilton school system, and I'm really worried. I'm worried about the kids. <laughs> you know, it, it, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, Michael Kovrig, uh, he's out, uh, you know, and finally gets some rest. He's finally back home and such. And the first thing he does is go and get a COVID-19 vaccination and tweets out a shot of him and his pharmacist, which I'm thinking that has to, that has to have some sort of uh, resonance with people. Well, uh, you know, a haircut in his, in, his, in his vaccine after being locked away for over a thousand days. I think that should really speak to a lot of people. I mean, talk about someone who had their freedoms restricted for a really long time. And, you know, the first thing that he's doing is going to get the vaccine. So people who are complaining that their freedoms are being restricted, take a look at Michael Kovrig and just see what he's doing. And maybe consider that there's more that you can do. Just stop being so selfish, please. And, you know, I'm surprised that he's kind of out and about, like considering and, and we don't know what his vaccination status is, whether he got anything in China or not or, or what he's had. But obviously that was his first one that we were told. If I was him, I'd be in like inside, you know, some sort of isolation until I was you know, sure I got my second dose and I was safe. Because, again, like you said, he's he's been he's been in captivity for that long. Yeah, and like we said yesterday, I mean, I can't even imagine the world has changed so much since he's been out and about. So, like, the adjustments are just probably astronomical. But like you say, he's getting his vaccine, so... He's, he's adjusting. Good for him. Yeah. I know. That's great. Coming up after the news at 6 o'clock, the Scott Radley Show starts. Uh, obviously, Scott, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator and with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing just peachy. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, poll question of the day, will the Blue Jays clinch a, a uh, playoff spot? There seems to be a lot of spirit on this team. They seem to really enjoy being around each other. They do. It's a fun team to watch because much like if you remember, and I know you do, back in 2015 after mm-hmm. they made all those trades, um, they didn't win games 2-1. to one. They won them you know, 10-6 to six and 13-8. to eight. I mean, they pounded the ball, and that's what this yeah. team does too. And I know there are people who love the great pitchers duel, but I know there's an awful lot more people who love watching balls fly out of the park and lots of offense. And so that makes this team pretty exciting. All right, uh, around the Bay, good news for those folk. Going to start up again next year for the 2022 edition in March of the Around the Bay Road Race. Uh, Talk about how, how, what an institution this race is and and how significant it is not only to the running world but to this community. Were you, did you have your fingers crossed and were you touching wood when you were saying that? Because, you know. Yeah. I just. Who who knows what happens by March, but. Yeah, we just had Anna Lewis on. We just had Anna Lewis on. And again, we were talking about protocols. How do you know what protocol is going to be in next March? I mean, you have no idea yet. We don't know for next week what protocols are going to be half the time. So hopefully, hopefully, because you know what? This is is one of um, 
maybe the signature event in the city right now? I mean, annual event. What, what, other, yeah. what other event do we have every year that draws thousands of people from around Canada and the States to do one thing? I mean, if we have the Country Music Awards, which, you know, happen occasionally, or the Junos, which we get occasionally, those things are great events, but they're not, they're not a calendar repeated. I, I can't think of the thing in the city that is an annual occur, reoccurring thing that brings as many people to town as this does. Super crawl. Yep, you, you're it's right. working on it. Uh, yeah, no, no. You know what? I, that skipped my mind. Of course. So let's put super crawl up there as well. That's absolutely true. And so there's your two. And super crawl got bounced this year as well. They're making something happen. But yeah, yeah I mean it's it's um it's been very difficult for these events. And the big concern that I have, and I hope that this is not true. Anytime you start to take something out of people's schedule that has been building so much momentum, you hope that they don't go, eh, yeah. you know what, okay, I got by, I don't have to do it next year. Uh, I, I hope that this year is a blip, and next year isn't a situation where people say, I got by without it, where everyone says, I missed it so much, I got to go back next year. That's what I'm hoping. And just a reminder, tomorrow on Good Morning Hamilton, Tim Potasek of Supercrawl will be there talking about their event Excellent. that they've got coming up uh, next month. All right, uh, I thought it was a great shot earlier on of uh, Michael Kovary getting his shot. Gets a haircut today and yep. a and his first uh, COVID-19 vaccine shot. If I was him, I'd still be in a plastic bubble, man. I wouldn't be going out anywhere until I got both my shots, considering what my past has been. But do you think that's going to encourage people to get theirs? Uh, I mean, again, we're already at an 85 percent rate i'm not sure how much higher we can go but boy when you see this guy after you know over a thousand days in captivity one of the first things he does is get a shot that's that's got to resonate uh sure and, and i think I, I read somewhere today or heard somewhere i can't remember where it, or i got it but that he is right now finding it stunning that he's a celebrity wherever he goes yeah, yeah, and yeah. and you know again a thousand and what was it a thousand and twenty days a thousand and forty yeah. days whatever it was not having any idea what's happening back home. And if you're even being remembered and you come home to discover that, you know what, you are, everybody knows who you are and everyone's thrilled to see you back. And in fact, that's what we're talking about first in the show today, because while the two Michaels are being celebrated and absolutely appropriately so, there are still something like 115 Canadians being held as... Yep prisoners political prisoners mostly but in chinese prisons including one from burlington we're going to be talking to his wife because she's looking at this mm. saying you know i'm thrilled that the two michaels are home but when do i get my turn my husband's been there for 15 years in a chinese prison yeah. and apparently has never even had a visit from a Canadian diplomat or ambassador because he can't for some reason uh, when is our turn and so as great as the Michael story is, there's a lot of sad stories that are still out there. And it'll be fascinating to know if what's happening with the two Michaels has created any sort of momentum with that discussion, considering, you know, China it hopefully will work on its world image here. Maybe this will start something. Well, has it, has it been surprising to you now? They've, how long have they been home? Three days? Um, yeah. I don't know if it's been surprising to you that we haven't seen a full sit-down interview with him yet. I'm sure that every single journalist in yeah. the country wants to do that. Yeah. But I wonder, for that reason, I wonder if they are going to tell the full story or if there's concern that if they tell everything, that antagonizes China and makes it worse for the other Canadians who are still there. 
I think there's a couple of things going on there. Number one, their mental health, so they probably aren't going to talk till they're good and ready. But yes, there's also the very political aspect of this, and what they say could have massive ramifications. Everybody wants to hear that story of yep. what the experience was like, and it'll be fascinating to see if we ever get to hear it. Hopefully, we will. Hopefully, and and yeah, but again, these guys know what it's like, and so if anybody is hesitant or loathe to do anything that's going to make it worse for someone else who's there, it would yeah, be them. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming right up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. You too, Scott. Thanks. 557, that's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Ted and Lisa for participating today. Uh, coming up next, it's the CHML News and, of course, the Scott Radley Show after that. As always, we leave it to you on Hamilton Today for the last word. Get yourself up there, up on top of the CHML soapbox, and get it off your chest. The first around the Bay road race in Hamilton, first prize, it was a silver cup and a dozen premium cigars.